Please turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. Luke 5, 33 to 39. And they said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking wine, old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Father, may I have the grace of a teacher, an expositor. So that as we even look into this historical situation and encounter, none of us will leave without the clear application to our own personal lives in the 21st century to the glory of Jesus, the Savior, and the new wine of eternal life, I pray. Amen. The coming of Jesus to earth and the whole meaning of His purpose and life is about joy. It's about true and genuine and deep and everlasting happiness. There's an old saying that the essence of, of many people's religion is that they are not content until they get everyone else around them just as miserable in religion as they are. They have their own rules. And they make it their own business to try to get everybody else to follow their own rules. I remember after going through a large paradigm shift on this. I was a Christian for a couple years and on fire for Jesus. And you know what? You actually do stop doing some stuff you used to do. And you have new patterns of life. And you know what even... Some activity in your life may be not in and of itself sinful, but for you it would be, etc. You go through that. And then I went through a, a pattern of change in my life, a paradigm shift on who I should push those things on or not. And so you get to the place where just don't care sometimes what people think. I remember showing up to 
Dallas, Texas, and the school I would be at for the next two years, Christ for the Nations Institute. And the very night I was there, I slept and I woke up and it was New Year's Day and there's hardly any human beings around. Just a couple stragglers who were not at home from Christmas vacation. I don't know anybody. I don't know Dallas. I, it was New Year's Day. I wanted to know one thing. Where can I go watch the college football bowl games? Because that's what New Year's Day is for. Well, my culture. And I remember I was downstairs in the men's dormitory. There about four guys there. And one guy says, if I even knew, I wouldn't tell you. Because he knew that real, strong, spiritual Christians don't go to a pizza bar and watch college football ball games. I have great confidence he's more mature now and probably doesn't respond that way anymore. But the two biggest wrecking balls, you know those big, huge, massive wrecking balls that tear down buildings. I guess we just mainly blow them up now, I don't know. But the two big wrecking balls to genuine Christianity are asceticism and legalism. The ascetic, they are those who do things and patterns in their life on purpose to try to make life more difficult than it actually would be. Otherwise, it's rooted in this idea that pleasure, like eating a steak, or not having pain in your body at the moment, or, or whatever, that, that pleasure in itself, though, is dangerous, if not sinful. And so there's a history. Just look up asceticism and just read histories on ascetics in the church. The other is legalism where it becomes a person, even in Christianity, the goal of their life is to live by their lists of do's and don'ts and the joy they get in trying to get others around them to live by their lists. And normally their lists are not (laughs) the major things of the Bible, the law like love and mercy, and justice, and faith, and joy in God. They are other things. Ascetics and legalists are downers. That's what they are. That's what we are to the extent we go there. Judgmental, gloomy, miserable looking downers. Now, As we come to our text, remember what we just saw right before from last week in verses 27 to 32. Luke has just told us about Jesus and with his disciples being invited and going to a very festive party of eating and drinking and laughing and talking and teaching. He's Jesus wherever he goes, but you've got to understand the gravity of it. It's that he actually went inside. That house where there's some Gentiles and there's some Jews who are called sinners. So, unclean, non-ceremonial keeping Jews. And you don't do it. And then he showed us that a day or two later, there's the separatist group of religious folks who were really upset about it. Now, this morning, he gives us this interaction that Jesus has 
with what I really think is particularly the general populace of Jews. Not, not the Pharisees, particularly. You see, let, let me just, look, let, let's just say you could fill up the L.A. Coliseum with 100,000 people. Just kind of let that be your model of first century Judaism in Palestine, okay? The vast majority, almost all, almost all, are religious. They're, they're synagogue going. They n- are not eating bacon sandwiches, pigs. They're keeping kosher, etc. That's almost all of them. Now, when you get the real religious who actually join a particular group, like the Pharisees, or the Essenes, or, or the Zealots, or even Sadducees, those are minorities. The vast majority don't belong to those groups, but they are religious and they're influenced particularly by the one particular group called the Pharisees. Okay? That's what's going on. That's who I think asked this question, the general crowd. The reason I say it is notice the statement in verse 33 and how it's phrased. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. John the Baptist. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Okay. The reason I think that this here is not the next thing that happens after the last passage where Jesus is instructing or responding to the Pharisees' question, I've come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then, boom! I think it's a different situation because if it were the Pharisees, it just seems like it would read, John's disciples fast and pray, and so do we! But, But it doesn't. Okay? Just so... Just for the text, that's what I think is going on here. That's the mainstream Jewish crowd. And by grouping together, John the Baptist, his disciples, this is their practice. They fast. And they pray. And so do those of the, uh, the, the that members in the Pharisaic group. They fast. It tells us that this question is not merely a question about this particular minority. This is a huge first century Jewish question. Fasting, in this question, is a large part of the religious life of all those people who are in the L.A. Coliseum of 100,000. Okay? Fasting was huge in the first century. And here's the other thing about it. What it there's a, attached to it. Just take the Bible out for a moment. What does the Bible? It doesn't matter at this point. It matters. What does this culture think about it? And connected to fasting was this massive, not the only thing, but it was pretty large. Very directly connected to gloominess, mourning. Uh, why fasting for the hope of the future God make these promises have these promises come about etc and it's not this pleasant thing it's part of my religion to do when we want something to, to come that's not here yet and so the effect of fasting on the really religious in the first century was to cause much of their religion and what it meant just to be solemn and gloomy and joyless Okay, now, now, in the Scripture, the Law of Moses, as far as I can see, there's, there's 
it calls the nation of Israel to one fast a year. I mean, directly, you fast on the Day of Atonement. Up to this time, there were, in, it was the custom that there were four calls to fast every year in the first century. Now, the Old Testament speaks about fasting more than that, and there are fast called for particular purposes, but ongoingly, just at once. Now, as we're in the first century, we've talked in the previous weeks about what has been happening for the last few hundred years, and Judaism now is coming about since the exile. And in particular, to be a Pharisee, it meant what thing you are doing, besides many others, is this. You fast twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday. Remember Jesus' parable? The Pharisee, I fast twice a week. And it's right there, and we have it from Josephus, and we have it from the Mishnah. This is, what it, this is part of what they do. And remember, the influence of the Pharisees on the general populace who weren't Pharisees was strong and huge. Okay? So that's what's going on. And when these particularly Pharisees would fast, what it would mean was they really put on I'm gloomy and I'm fasting. They would throw ashes on their head. They would whiten their face. They would wear ragged clothes on their day of fast, a regular part of their life. It's this idea that you're not spiritual unless you're gloomy. Okay. Remember, let me just read, you know this, I'll read Jesus's. Response, because I'm just appealing to Jesus here just as a guy who lived in the first century at this moment, because this is the culture. Listen to him. Chapter 6 of Matthew. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. Here's the point right now. Fasting, ongoing, regular fasting in the first century Jewish life was a major part of their religion. Here's this religious leader, this Jesus guy. His following's getting bigger and bigger as we're unfolding more of Luke. And they're noticing they don't fast. They don't abstain and go through those hunger pains for purposes of prayer and God bring these promises about. It's, it's a good question. What's happening here? So Jesus answers them in verses 34 to 35. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's not really asking them, give me your answer. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. You know that. In our culture, Jesus shares with him, you don't do that. That's his answer. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Okay, so his first answer is, 
This is why they don't fast and pray and do all these things that you're doing and even like John's disciples do. What are you talking about? Let's get a picture in the first century. When a Jewish couple got married, it wasn't like boom and then put bells in their car and let them drive off on their donkeys and go on a honeymoon. What they did is that they stayed home for that whole week. And that whole week was an open house party, festivities, eating, drinking, and they're treated like king and queen, particularly by their chosen parties called guests of the bridegroom. Well, literally, even in the Greek right here, it's sons of the bride chamber. And so it's a week-long open house party, rejoicing. Okay, we'll rejoice and eat and stuff and have fun after Alex's graduation. This is something to celebrate. This is what they do with the wedding. And particularly those who, they're the close chosen friends. They are the guests or the sons of the bride chamber. They're there all week long, coming in and out and serving and eating and drinking. Okay, So much so that there was rabbinical law that excused the person who's the guest of the bridegroom for that week to not go through the religious week-by-week ceremony, particularly of fasting. It basically said anything that would cause them to be not happy, rejoicing like fasting, they are relieved of that religious observance for that week. Okay, There's the cultural thing. And so Jesus says, of course they don't fast and pray and do all this kind of stuff like you're doing right now. The bridegroom's with them. It's party time. I mean, what are you saying? Is fasting, yearning, God, bring deliverance. Bring the Son of David that is promised. He's saying, this is what's in the back of this. While you're doing that, You're missing it. He's here. And those who are my disciples, instead of fasting for Him to come, they're actually sitting down and eating with Him. Okay. That's my best. That's what I think Jesus means by what He is saying. And it would be wrong for them to say, Jesus, excuse me, I'm going to go over here and be really gloomy for a while and starve myself for 24 hours and pray, please, God, bring us deliverance when the deliverer is there. This is what he said. Now, he goes on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, my disciples. And then they will fast. In those days. So there's a time and there's a place for fasting. And Jesus saying, the time is not when God Himself is here in true humanity, hanging out, eating fish, talking, partying, challenging, laughing, healing. I'm here. But there's a time that's going to come. And He is predicting His death when He says the bridegroom will be taken. Now, and here's, you know, the scholars over the centuries have said, what is he referring to? Does that mean they're just going to fast from Good Friday to Easter Sunday? He's taken away? Oh, he comes because he does come back. He comes back in the flesh. 
in a resurrected body. But, but I don't think that's what he means. Because I got the rest of the Bible and I've got, I got Luke. I got Luke part two. I got Acts and fasting is happening in the early church. And I think what Jesus is saying is there's something unique about God in his incarnation walking among them. This is, this is comparable to the wedding couple for that week. It's party time. It's celebration time. It's celebration while I'm here and those who are called to be my disciples are walking closely with me. How can they fast? The bridegroom's here. There'll be a time when he's not. And I think that time when he's not means for the last 2,000 years. Yes, he was raised. Yes, he for 40 days appeared to them. But he ascended again. And he's not here. And fasting and praying and, 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 and putting down the flesh and begging and yearning, God, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. There's so much that is not fulfilled yet. The earth is still waiting total restoration even today. So, when He says, He's going to be taken and there will be time when the disciples, that means you too. There's a time where this thing, an option of fasting will be happening again, meaning during the church age. Then, Jesus goes on and He gives these three illustrations. It's connected, but He's taking something here. Because what's going on here is, look, here's religion, I mean, here's Judaism in the first century, and fasting's one little thing here, but it's, as we have been seeing, it's been building up with this tension with Jesus and to His fellow Jews. He's going to give three illustrations. You want to talk about fasting? We'll talk about other stuff too. And He says this to them, which, let me just give you my interpretation to begin with. He's saying, the old ways of Judaism are not going to fit with a new way of my coming. Start with verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a new piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Okay. You, you got unshrunk cloth, put it on a patch of your pants, They've been shrunk. <laughs> you got a problem when you go through the sun and the wet and whatnot. They're going to start to shrink and it's going to rip. The patch is not going to match what's old. What are you, what are you talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about him his coming. Who are you about? He's saying, me, Jesus. The good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows why he's here, okay? So we can just look back and say, that's what he's saying. That gospel and what it means and what it produces in the earth, the nature of his coming is radically different from what Judaism had become. He's saying they don't fit. To mix them is not good. And you try and you will tear the gospel. If you try to keep cultural Judaism and you try to take the 
new patch of the gospel and just put it on top of Judaism. Keep all that there. Now we've got a new patch. We've got the Jesus thing. Okay? He's saying it won't work. They don't fit. You'll lose the gospel. I think Jesus' point here is clear. That the ways of the gospel, the ways of Jesus, and the ways of Judaism are totally different. You will significantly damage the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't recognize it and realize you can't take the gospel and just sew it onto the old patch of Judaism. Let me make clear. And Jesus will make clear, and the Bible does make clear, that His coming and what that gospel is, is in continuity with the Old Testament. It's in continuity and in fulfillment of God's Word, the Hebrew Scriptures. But it is also clear that what Jesus does bring in fulfillment is historically and in redemptive history and a timeline distinctly new. How sinners, with Jesus now, how my fellow Jews who are sinners and, and all the rest who Gentiles, how sinners approach God and live that out in community is radically different than the old way of ceremonial cultural Judaism. Like kosher diet. Like circumcising every male child on the eighth day. Or if you're an adult and want to come into that covenant community, you get ceremonially circumcised. Like keeping Sabbath laws. Like keeping the yearly festivals and making your journeys to the temple in Jerusalem. He's saying they don't fit. Now, this is not easy. I mean, most of us here, we're Gentiles. Oh, that's easy. Trust me, this is going to fit with your Pentecostalism that you grew up in, with your non-Pentecostalism, with your Baptist, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, whatever it is. It's going to fit somewhere because there's tradition. Oh, let's just make it really easy. Your family of origin. Boy, you know one reason why marriage can be hard? Because there's different ways to do dishes or not do dishes or to clean up a house and not to clean up a house. And why? Because you were born in a particular one. Okay, we easily get steeped in culture and in tradition. Now, you, you, you got biblical precedence for much of your culture? <laughs> it's going to really be hard. So hard that it takes the apostles and the early church some time 
to really work this out. The new patch of the gospel and the old patch of my culture. Judaism. Not easy. What I mean is this. Let me just give you a couple of this working out in Luke, part two, called Acts of the Apostles. In chapter 10, here we are. Okay, Peter, he's a Jew. He's been walking with Jesus. We know Peter pretty well, right? (sighs) The forgiveness. He hangs out with Jesus for weeks after he denied him. After his resurrection. And he's there, waiting in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit falls, and he preaches the first great sermon. Now, probably, it's really hard to guess how, probably go two years now. Hey, Peter, you want to come over and, and eat at the Gentile house? Are you out of your mind? This is not easy, it's his culture. So we pick up in chapter 10 of Acts. Listen, he needed a vision. He needed God to supernaturally give him a vision. He needed God to take a big sheet and put a bunch of animals, you know, food, okay, on the sheet that are listed in the book of Leviticus that you, Jew, are not supposed to eat. And so you've got bacon sandwiches running around. You've got lobster tail. You've got particular kinds of birds, etc., He's never eating that stuff. He's a Jew. And God says to him, the Apostle Peter, kill and eat. Let me just read it. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No way! That's what by no means means. Lord! Wow, that's strong. (laughs) See how deep it is? Jesus, no! (laughs) No! You been there? You might have been there in your Christianity. No way, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Biblically. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Wow. You can't take, Peter. Your old garment of cultural Judaism, which, which it means this, God gave the Jews particular laws that in and of themselves were not moral or immoral. Even if some people might tell you that to eat a pig is immoral by definition. It would only become immoral if God commanded you not to eat it. Then that's a moral issue. But in and of itself, it's not. Murder is a, <laughs> immoral by definition. Adultery is immoral by definition. There's a difference between moral law and cultural ceremonial law that God gave for His particular people, the Jews, in order to make them holy. I didn't say sanctify or make them actually righteous. Holy, meaning, that word means set apart. And it worked. It still works today. That's what He did. Now Christ comes and things change. And you don't put the new patch on the old. It's just hard to work out. So now, okay, that happens with Peter. Let's just go a couple years now into the future. And their church is still wrestling with it. They have to call this first major ecumenical council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So we start off in verse 1. But some men, these are Jewish 
Christians now. Some men came down from Judea up to Antioch, basically a Gentile city where the church where a church is, okay? A lot of Christians, Jews and Gentiles in the church in Antioch. But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, the Christians. These are the Gentile Christians that are getting taught this now. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, get it? Both these guys are Jews. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means they had a big, huge fight. Verbally. After Paul and Barnabas had a big, huge fight and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed in order to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay. Now, just brief, I, I mean, I don't want to read the whole thing. While they're there, listen to what one thing that happens. Verse 5. But some believers... This means people who say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Believe He's been resurrected from the dead. That's what He means. Some of these Jewish believers. But some believers in the Jerusalem church who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Who? The Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. And what they're saying is, we agree. You can be a Gentile. You can be saved by Jesus. You can't do it if you, in your salvation, you're not clearly making clear you're going to become Jewish. That's the issue. That's what it means to be ceremonially circumcised. That's what it means to start keeping kosher diet, Sabbaths and new moons, etc. They couldn't take it. Many professing Jewish Christians. It's a very difficult issue. So much so that Peter himself, years later, lapsed under the cultural pressure. When I say lapse, he didn't lapse in his theology of how a person is saved, justification by faith. He didn't. Now, don't ever think that. It's a misreading of what I'm going to read. He lapsed. We all do this. Cultural pressure can be so strong that you do something that you know I probably shouldn't do that because it might communicate something that's not true. And that's what he did. When I read what the Apostle Paul records happened but when the apostle Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face publicly because he, what he did was public because he stood condemned he was wrong what do you mean Paul this is what happened for before certain men came from James, James is the head 
honcho leader. Lots of leaders. He's just, he's the head honcho, became like that senior pastor, elder kind of guy of the massive church in Jerusalem. That is Jesus' brother, James. Okay? So, before certain men came from the Jerusalem church, from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. That means he's, hey, Peter, come to our house. Gentile Christian? Sure. And they feed him BLTs. And he had no problem with it. Give me another slice of ham. Lobster tail. Awesome. This is good stuff. What I've been missing all my life. That's what he's doing. So this is going on. All that happens is, these guys come up from the Jerusalem church. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when these guys came up, he began to withdraw or draw back and to separate himself from non-Jewish Christians. Fearing, here's his reason, the party of the circumcision and the rest of the Jews that in the church and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay? This is not an easy thing for them. And we're going to see Jesus say that in a little bit. You can't just take the gospel and put it on old Judaism, cultural Judaism, and say this is what it is to be a Christian now. And if you don't you get in line with this program, you can't be saved. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. You destroy the gospel. Now again, one of the main themes in the book of Acts that Luke is laying out is saying, Jews, fellow Jews, Paul would go to the Jews, to the synagogue and all the cities. First, here's the gospel. The Messiah has come. He has died for your sin. Every one of you who clings to Him and believes in Him. And God raised Him from the dead to prove this. Okay. He goes to him and says, flee to Jesus. And all of this is in continuity with Moses and the law. And he's the fulfillment, the goal, the end of it all. That's what he preached. Okay. It's not something totally different. It is the culmination of it. And through Acts, he is also laying out what's happening in those first couple decades of how also it's got to be made clear that Jewish cultural ceremonial law-keeping drops off when you evangelize the non-Jew. And if you say, sorry, Gentile, you must add the old cloth to the new cloth to have the whole piece and finally be saved, then you have made, even though you talk about Jesus dying for sins and rising from the dead, you have distorted the core of the gospel. Here's what Paul says directly to that issue. Quote, Galatian churches, plural, because this so-called Christian group behind him, like the ones that came up to Antioch, professing Christ and saying you have to also add this stuff, they kept coming behind Paul's missionary work. He's gone now. Let's go talk to the church what they've got to really do now. Paul says, I am a scoundrel. 
astonished Gentile professing believers. I am angry that you are so quickly deserting God. For a different gospel. That's what he says. He words it this way. I'm so astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who want to disturb you with their teaching in order to distort the gospel of Christ. It's directly to the issue that I've been talking about for 20 minutes. It's directly to the issue that you cannot take the good news of grace in Jesus Christ and apply it to the old cloth of Judaism. With Jesus' coming, things radically change. The Old Testament was types and shadows of the sacrificial system and the high priesthood and the priesthood in general and the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the high priest. The church, the people are priests. Temple, you don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You are the temple of the living God through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, and you see this in Paul's writing so clearly. And that's why he talks this way. Because this is Paul's, what we're talking about right now, was one of Paul's major theological slash cultural problems that he is addressing. And therefore, in God's sovereign providence, is God, God addressed for all time in the New Testament. was this problem. How do Jews and Gentiles come together in Jesus Christ? Well, they do come together. Paul talks about that's God's mind-boggling goal. That Jew and Gentile would become one body in Christ. And during this time, when that happens, the Jewish cultural Levitical laws drop off. They're not demanded. They're neither here nor there with those who are in Christ. Jesus drives this same point home now with His second illustration. So we'll go a little bit quicker now. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Okay, so you got sheep, you got goats, you know, and you, you try to get all the skin off as whole as you possibly can. You do all the tanning, different stuff you do. It doesn't smell like an animal anymore, right? You don't want that in your wine. So they do all that process and you sew it up and you make these containers so that you can make your wine. As you pour in the new wine, those new skins are very pliable and can stretch. They're strong. And so as the new wine is poured in and it ferments and expands, you're fine. You can have some good wine. Those skins 
over time become not so good. They become brittle. So if you've got an old skin that's more brittle and it doesn't stretch as well and you put new wine into it and it ferments and expands, it's going to bust. It's going to burst. You lose the wine. You lose the skin. He's saying, this is, you can't take the new wine of the gospel and put it in the old wine skins of cultural Judaism. If you do, you're going to lose them. They're gone. You lose the gospel. The same thing. The old covenant and the cultural Judaism that it produced is not fit to carry the new wine of the gospel of Christ. The old structure of Judaism won't work. Then he adds this third analogy or proverb, really, in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine. For he says, the old is good. His point here is that many Jews, he's saying, and he's a Jew, but he's saying many, my fellow religious Jews, have placed their flag in old legalism to such an extent they will not change. They're not going to taste the new wine of the Savior. The point of the illustration is not that the old wine is better than the new. That's not what he means. He's saying what most of us, I know I can, relate to. The old's good enough. I don't like change. And they won't. I don't. Trust me. Follow my wife and me to Mexican restaurants. What are you going to get? Even though we look at the menu, I don't know why we ever look at it. We're going to get fajitas. They're fine. They're good. I know they're good. Could take a chance on anything else. That's what he's saying. He's, he's saying the Jews, including the Pharisees, will have to break with their life in religion in what they trusted in in order to follow the new way and drink of the new wine. Who is Jesus Christ? All right, so I have a little time left. I got two applications of what we're seeing happened here in this conversation in the first century. I find it applicable today. First, remember the context, what's going on, the gloominess, Jesus party and eating. <laughs> the core meaning of Jesus' coming is for your joy. He didn't come to be a killjoy. He didn't come so that you can become some kind of a religious hermit that somehow find my significance in depriving this or depriving that is my significance. He didn't come with religious dictums to follow as the goal or end that maybe from them you'll get your joy from being looked at by others like the Pharisees. They did it for the praise of men. He came for real, festive joy.
Christianity at its core is not about do's and don'ts. Just do this and just don't do that and that's how you become more holy. You've just totally have obliterated the Gospel. And so in that context, defining, trying to define what I mean by asceticism and legalism. Legalism is not equivalent to obedience. It's just really hard to define. I'm trying to do my best without going too long this morning. Here's the application. Flee daily the temptation for legalism. Flee. How? For the joy of hanging out with the bridegroom. Satan loves religion and Satan has over the centuries loved to promote religion as a put a stick in your mouth, grit your teeth and just do it because that's what religion's about. And it's satanic. True Christianity is a happy calling of repentance and turning to glorify God by enjoying Him in Jesus Christ as your treasure forever. A joyless Christian or someone who is looking to something lesser than and other than God in Jesus Christ as the object, foundation, source of ultimate joy. It's a contradiction in terms with what the new wine is about. Yeah. What does that mean? That is, as Paul said, <laughs> I mean, f- for five chapters, he's arguing this in the book of Romans, and, and he knows some people say, well then, hey, let us just be happy however we can all day long. Whatever that may be. Sexual sin. Drunkenness. Drug abuse. Hey, I feel like giving that person a piece of my mind. I mean, it's, I'll be honest with how I feel. Why not just share it? Shall we just, is that what grace means? And Paul says, no. So that's the struggle of the Christian life. When someone like Joe LeMay says, okay, got to flee legalism. But does that mean you just do anything you feel like doing? Does that mean, that you, do you ever look to words on a page of Scripture and say, God, help me follow you? Yeah, you do. And how do you deal with that tension? Well, here, here's one thing that I mean about legalism. And this is, not, this is not the Christian life to pursue. And that is, the legalism of the Pharisees was in order to act and to do or to refrain from doing for the motivation of the joy that they get in being looked on by others as spiritual. That's why Jesus said, you got your reward. That's their goal. Motivation is huge in the Christian life. Now, do we... In Christianity, have self-denial? I mean, fasting is a self-denial. Not having sex with that person who's not my spouse, that is a self-denial. Not punching that button on the internet when no one's looking, that's a denial of something that you may really yearn for at that moment. Christianity, oh, they're self-denial. Jesus said it very clearly, didn't He? If you don't, how did he say it? Someone start me off. This is not in my notes. Deny the world you shall... How does it go? 
gosh, these people are biblically illiterate like me. Huh? Come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Yeah. Okay. But, but again, why? The motivation is to get Jesus Christ. In the Christian life, the things that we may choose or not choose to do, someone may need, like I did in my life before 1985, no, 1986, New Year's Day morning, I did need to refrain from college football. Now it's to the place where I thought I didn't and I shouldn't. Okay. But the reason was everything. That guy can't put his reason on my life of college football. There. My motivation would have been wrong. My motivation before was clear. It was a God. And it was in the way. The reason we deny things in our life are not just for religious reasons. I just deny. I don't know. That's what you're supposed to do at this church. You deny them because of the threat they are to get in your way of true joy with the bridegroom. And, okay, I did my it would Talk to me later. Let me just... What I'm going to do, I'm going to quote Paul. Pray for me that I won't try to interpret it much because I know time's going. This is what I think is Paul's best shot at summarizing what I've just tried to say. Galatians 5, 5-6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I can't do it. His whole argument up to this point has been against Christian Jews trying to push on others that you have to do this, that, and the other external things in your life in order to be saved. And the motivation there is, therefore, I do it in order to be significant before God. And therefore, that's my ticket to salvation. That is what the Scripture is talking about. That you're saved by Faith through grace, totally apart from anything you do or are. Get back to the text. Paul says that's not it. Here's the Christian life. Through the Holy Spirit living in you, by faith. Not, that's, not, that's not, oh, by faith, I guess just faith means just believe, whatever. No, no. By intimately pursuing and trusting in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting what? Trusting what He says. Trusting His promises. Paul says that's the Christian life. You don't offer anything to it. By the Spirit, in the Spirit, according to the Spirit, by that activity of trusting Him, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We do not try to pursue, do this and don't do that, in order that I may show what righteousness I have. The only righteousness you want 
is Jesus' righteousness. And it will be manifested in the future. You can be assured of it now in justification by faith, Paul makes here. But now, there's still future. We still struggle. This life is a battleground. But it's waged from this foundation. Christ alone is my righteousness. Now, the next verse. Verse 6. Why do we live this way? By the Spirit, through faith. Because, here's the truth. In Christ Jesus, are you in Him? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for a hill of beans. I'm going I'm I'm to stand this text. I realize I'm not even going to give you my second application because of time. It, it doesn't count for anything. Okay, let me just, this is what I mean. Whether you eat kosher diet or don't eat kosher diet, circumcision, uncircumcision, whether you do the sign of the cross to the left or you start to the right, okay. whether you wear those clothes or whether you do this, whether you read your Bible that way or you read the Bible the other way, or at times, whether in and of itself you read the Bible, it doesn't count for a hill of beans. What counts is now, that will get you to read your Bible differently. What counts is faith, which works itself out in loving others. That's the Christian life. Asceticism, though, legalism, they're enemies to this gospel. So you don't miss it now. After That's Galatians 5, verses 5 to 6. In Galatians 5, you know, Paul goes on to talk to the genuine Christian and he says, we are in a constant battle against our flesh. Which means, your flesh will say, do this! Don't do that! And do that! And Paul says, resist it! And it's different than legalism. Because it's through the Spirit. The motivation being by faith. Which means the motivation being, Jesus, I hate all of these obstacles that are within me. That want to deprive me of true joy in you right now. That's why we believers resist what our natural sinful disposition says. That would bring me happiness. And it's true. It's true that it feels that way. And it's true that it will temporarily. But we through the Spirit by faith have an eternal view. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And therefore, the power for me or for you at that given moment of temptation is not an incantation by reciting Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. It is God help me now, now, now. Yesterday won't work. I have to believe it. And that's the fight of faith. That that 
action is a road of perdition. Not real happiness. That's a lie. That's the Christian battle. And therefore, motive is everything. Oh, there's so much more I want to say and I can't believe how time went. So I won't say it. But one last text. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by the works of your religion, Christian religion, things that you do that you may interpret as thinking, therefore that's the only way to do them and others must do them too? Did you receive the Spirit by acts that you did or by the hearing with faith? Scripture says, Christian, haven't begun as a nobody by hearing the gospel. Faith came alive. Having begun by the Spirit. Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? The implication is by the same unearned faith that arose in your heart. That's the Christian life. You don't start with faith and go on to something else. You start with faith and you live by the same faith until the day you die, which at its core is Jesus as the treasure in the field. You start to realize in your Christian life that I don't even know what I'm doing. It's now it's my culture. I went and sold my another house and I bought another field, but I don't even know why. I guess I'm just doing that. And then you start to realize Yuck. Even that it's sin. That which was one time faith and good, I just realized was legalism and yucky. Oh God, I st- tell me which fields to buy. But for the treasure that's in the field is the Christian walk. Father, one, one prayer that Right now, I beg on behalf of all of us who are so desperate to experience you in Jesus Christ through the promises so much more than we do. Continue to speak and love and tenderly mold and rebuke by your Spirit as we sing to the glory of Jesus. Amen.